There was a time when, though my path was rough, this joy within me dallied with distress, and all misfortunes were but as the stuff whence fancy made me dreams of happiness. For hope grew round me like the twining vine, and fruits and foliage, not my own, seemed mine. But now afflictions bow me down to earth, nor care I that they rob me of my mirth. But oh, each visitation suspends what nature gave me at my birth, my shaping spirit of imagination. Words by the romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge from his poem Dejection an Ode in which the narrator of the poem sits looking at an evening sky the moon and the stars are visible and a storm is gathering but the narrator is tormented by how flat and empty he feels he's not able to connect emotionally with the beautiful scenery around him he can see that it is beautiful but he's not able to feel it experience it live it and so he feels cut off and dead and empty inside all of us are perhaps familiar with this feeling in some form or to some degree. There can be periods in life when it seems that we're stuck or we've come up against some apparently insurmountable obstacle. And then it can be as if all the meaning drains out of life and everything feels pointless. This can be one aspect, one expression of the archetype that we'll be exploring today. The card in the tarot known as the moon. It's an odd image, one whose meaning very likely is not apparent to us on first sight. And indeed the mysterious, the impenetrable, the submerged is another aspect of this archetype. What's on offer here is wisdom concerning how we negotiate what we're unable to find with what is currently obscured from us in the image itself. In the far distance there is sky, in the middle distance there's land, and in the foreground of the image there is water. Up in the sky the moon is shining, but at the same time <laughs> 
Across the many different depictions of this card, the moon also looking a little odd, a little strange. There's often a human face upon the moon, but shown in profile as if that face is turned away from us, often depicted as wearing a melancholy or kind of blank expression in the night sky. The apparent radiance of the moon is, of course, a reflected light, a false light, that actually is rebounding off the moon's surface from the sun. There's a link here, maybe, with that emotional state described in Coleridge's poem. It's narrator staring on the night sky, but unable to get past that deadness he feels within himself and really connect with the beautiful scenes of nature around him. There's a symbolic resonance, perhaps, with the way that the moon's light isn't really its own. And there's also the traditional idea of the man in the moon, the human face that we can imaginatively project upon the moon if we look at it in the right way. It's almost as if there's a sense that the moon itself is never available to us. It doesn't possess its own light, and even when we can see it clearly, we tend to project a human face upon it, seeing an image of ourselves there rather than what's actually there, the moon itself, which maybe starts to seem something by its nature, always dark and mysterious. In Coleridge's poem, its narrator is fully aware of what's needed for him to overcome that feeling of deadness inside. Ah, from the soul itself, must issue forth a light, a glory, a fair luminous cloud enveloping the earth, and from the soul itself must there be sent a sweet and potent voice of its own birth, of all sweet sounds, the life and element. To overcome that inner deadness, then, something has to come from inside that will animate the external world, that will restore a sense of meaning to it. And the poet describes this as like a light issuing out of the soul, or a sweet sound originating from within, radiating outwards. But where he finds himself instead, for the moment, is maybe in this kind of lunar realm, as we've described it so far, where there isn't any light being created from inside and sent out into the world. There's only a false light, a borrowed light, that's passively reflected rather than originated. And in that false light, what we see is a face staring back at us, a human face. 
the narrator of Coleridge's poem desperately wants to get outside of himself, get past himself, so he can escape that deadness. But when we're trapped in these lunar realms, it would seem, that's precisely what we can't do. All we see is our own limited projections reflected back at us from the outside world. There are so many strange and peculiar details packed into this tarot image. In many depictions of this card, the moon is coloured yellow and has all sorts of spiky rays projecting out of it. It looks like something more like what we'd consider a traditional representation of the sun. Although the card is known as the moon, it seems that what we're probably seeing here is the sun, and what's actually being depicted is not the moon alone, but the moon and the sun in a moment of full eclipse. The moon with its human face in that moment where it's blocking out almost totally the light of the sun. In that case, what's in play here is an extraordinary, an uncommon moment preceded by a darkening and a lessening of the light arriving now at this instant of maximum darkness to be succeeded, hopefully, if all goes well with a gradual increase and a return to the light. In this card, in the far distance on the earth, are two towers, one on either side. In the middle distance, again, one on either side, we have two dogs, or two wolves, looking up at the moon and howling. In some decks, such as the Rider Waite deck, it's apparent that one of these creatures is a wolf and the other is a dog, so that we have, in effect, what is a wild and a domesticated version of, basically, the same animal. In the very foreground of the card is a pool. Sometimes this looks naturally formed, but in many depictions it's apparent that it's a man-made enclosure of water. And in any case, what's almost universally apparent is that this body of water is static, stagnant, it's not flowing. And then, closest to us of all, in the very foreground, is the somewhat ominous looking figure of a crayfish. In some decks, the crayfish is depicted as rising up out of the depths of the pool, and in other decks might be positioned half in, half out of the water. In that case, it may look as if the crayfish is in the act of climbing out of the pool onto the land. But there's something to be considered here, perhaps, which is 
a remarkable characteristic that crayfish have. The ability, when they're under threat, to swim backwards. In those depictions where it seems the crayfish is emerging from the water, we have to consider the possibility instead that actually it might be retreating backwards from dry land. When we're confronted with an image of a path or a road winding through a landscape, that conveys a strong sense of there being a road ahead, a course for us to follow. It's as if everything in this card, this image, is working precisely against that sense of a way ahead. Even though there's nominally a landscape here, a horizon, and the suggestion of a course through this landscape, between the howling wolves and dogs, between the two distant towers. What this image suggests is that, for now at least, that's not the route we shall be following. In the foreground, this body of stagnant water blocks our progress. And in that water is the crayfish, this creature with its famed ability for moving in reverse, for moving backwards. Moments like this can arise in our lives. The light has drained away. The usual path we might ordinarily have followed is no longer apparent to us. It's gone. To surmount this, it's obvious what needs to happen. We know. We can feel it. That light, that sweet sound has to come from inside. Something new, something creative, energy, motivation. But although there's water, earth and air at work in this archetype, the element conspicuous by its absence is fire. No matter how much we need it and no matter how much we know that we need it, that light and that passion simply isn't there. It's not available. The light is blocked by the moon, this arid, dead, celestial body that has no light of its own. We can't at present escape this situation, but we need to, because if we stay here, the signs are that things will get worse. Often, in this card, the sky is full of droplets, as if the moon were showering down some kind of moisture or influence upon the earth. But if we look more closely, there may be signs that this is not what it seems. In the Marseille deck, the rounded end of those droplets, they're all pointing up towards the moon, and the tapering ends are pointed down towards the earth, which suggests that rather than showering something down, the moon is sucking up moisture sucking up some kind of sustenance or energy from the earth. The implication seems to be that if we remain under the moon's dead, cold influence, we'll be sucked dry 
Apparently, it's not a good idea to be like the wolf and the dog, both of them evidently in thrall of the moon. Dogs, of course, are characterised by their obedience and fidelity, and wolves for their wildness, their ruthlessness. Sometimes in everyday life, if we run up against something that seems insurmountable, the temptation might be to surrender to it, suck it up, tolerate it, but in the process assume an unjustified subservience, perhaps. Or we might be tempted into the opposite reaction, something more wolf-like than dog-like. We may end up railing and raging and criticising constantly this situation that we find ourselves in. But we're attacking from a place where we're still in thrall to the moon. We've been tempted away from what we knew all along needed to happen. Finding the light again. Finding that real, genuine, creative light that comes from within. As counterintuitive as it seems. In this dangerous moment of the darkening of the light, perhaps the crayfish is our model. We have to go backwards. We have to submerge ourselves in that stagnant pool, even though we know it's stagnant. When we find ourselves impeded and deadened inside, before that can lift, something new needs to be discovered. And before that new thing can be discovered, maybe we will need to rediscover something that's old. As the crayfish suggests, before it's possible to move forwards, we may need to move backwards. Before we break new ground, discover new territory, it may be necessary to revisit and spend some time in those places and in those parts of ourselves that we thought and maybe dearly hoped we'd left behind forever. This archetype, the moon, is active in our everyday lives. Whenever we find ourselves having to go backwards in order to move forwards, having to revisit the past in order to gain some sense of a possible future, this is the domain of the unconscious, of psychological disturbance, and the dark night of the soul. Mystics and artists probably know this territory all too well, but the very same dynamics can make their influence felt in everyday life also, where perhaps there's a greater danger of them being overlooked or underestimated. This is the waning moon, writes Alistair Crowley in his commentary on this card. The moon of witchcraft and abominable deeds. She is the poison darkness, which is the condition of the rebirth of light. She is uncleanliness and sorcery, all prejudice, 
all superstition, dead tradition and ancestral loathing all combined to darken her face before the eyes of men. It needs unconquerable courage to begin to tread this path. Here is a weird, deceptive life. Crowley really homes in on the backwardness and the feeling of perversity that is an aspect of this archetype. Before something new and alive can arise out of us, the first step towards that may entail reanimating something that's old and dead. And this is maybe that weird, deceptive life that Crowley mentions. Sigmund Freud, in the process of describing the psychological symptoms of one of his patients, he writes the following. A stream of water which meets with an obstacle in the riverbed is dammed up and flows back into old channels which had formerly seemed fated to run dry. The motive forces leading to the formation of hysterical symptoms draw their strength not only from repressed normal sexuality but also from unconscious perverse activities. What Freud seems to be suggesting there is the idea that we may take a particular course through our lives that may at certain times have involved a few wrong turns, a few digressions, phases of life and behaviours and the adoption of world views that now when we look back on them cause us to cringe with embarrassment. These are the old channels that he talks about in that passage. Directions we took that we've since abandoned and wouldn't dream of reactivating. But, he suggests, if in the present we meet with an obstacle in life that prevents us from continuing in the current direction that we've chosen, then, in the way that a river would, the water backs up and those old channels that had long run dry start to fill up again. And because our life has no forward direction to flow in, we can find ourselves indulging those old behaviours, opinions, ideas that we long ago abandoned, probably with good reason. When we follow the example of the crayfish and swim backwards, allowing ourselves to become fully immersed in that stagnant pool, we can, in this dangerous moment, find ourselves engaging again in behaviours that we know are destructive because we rejected them, abandoned them previously precisely because they were destructive, engaging again in opinions and attitudes that we know to be objectionable and erroneous 
because we previously rejected them as objectionable and erroneous. It's a scary and a perilous place to inhabit. This dynamic is also the dynamic of psychological symptoms. At this moment, undergoing this resurgence of old and discarded ways of being that we have intentionally abandoned. We are, in a sense, ill. We are sick. And yet, as Crowley reminds us, this poison darkness is the condition of the rebirth of light. But how does that light get reborn? How does this strategy ever prove effective? It's the darkening of our light that places us into these lunar realms due to some kind of perceived block or impediment. Like the moon, the only light we have now is one that is borrowed, passively received from other sources. We can't get past our current selves. We can't bring anything forth from inside ourselves. We try to avoid the twin pitfalls of dog and wolf, subservient surrender to the situation, or else railing against it, but in a way that doesn't imply any actual transformation of ourselves. And then instead, we follow the example of the crayfish. We swim backwards, immerse ourselves in the stagnant pool, and in the absence of anything new and alive, up from the depths comes to meet us everything that's old and dead. This is distressing, and this is dangerous, but where else can we learn anything from, if not from reliving the mistakes that we've made? These old and dead things were, at one time, alive and meaningful to us. So, is there not a possibility here, at least, that by revisiting our passion for what we now see to have been wrong for us, that some of that passion, some of that lost light and life, might be recaptured, and then it might be possible, maybe, to redirect it into something that is right for us, something new that we can now create and animate with that passion we've regained. The danger, the risk, however, is that we might find ourselves simply reversing into that stagnant pool and lapsing back into some former state of being and just staying there for good. That's maybe a way to avoid being sucked dry by the moon, but it would entail never coming up to the surface of that pool again. Jung describes all that old dead stuff that rises up from the unconscious 
as a kind of primal material. If this primal material, he writes, can be assimilated by the conscious mind, it will bring about a reactivation and reorganization of its contents. But if the conscious mind proves incapable of assimilating the new contents pouring in from the unconscious, then a dangerous situation arises in which they keep their original chaotic and archaic form and consequently disrupt the unity of consciousness. The resultant mental disturbance is a madness due to the splitting of the mind. It seems that assimilation and integration are the most important words in the process that Jung is describing there. In this respect, in the symbolism of the moon, what this brings forward perhaps is that when we mimic the crayfish, when we swim backwards into the depths of that pool, the darkness that we encounter there must not be reveled in simply for the sake of its darkness, but always and only as a means towards the recovery of the light. We need to remind ourselves that what's depicted in this symbol is not the night, but instead the extraordinary moment of an eclipse. Daylight shall be restored.